Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are some bands that are very consistent with their sound, and fans love them for it. Now, no two records are ever exactly the same, but whenever a new album is announced, we have a pretty good idea of what to expect. And then when we get into that album, we find that there's a, let's call it a sonic linearity to the songs. Nothing wrong with that. Then there are bands who like to take chances, take risks from record to record. The last thing Josh Homme and whatever his crew is in Queens of the Stone Age want to do is repeat themselves. That requires not only imagination, but creativity and guts. But while they acknowledge that this approach can confuse people and maybe alienate fans from release to release, they also know that a certain percentage, a solid one at that, love that the band likes to use the curveball. Heck, it's, it, it goes beyond that. We never know who's going to appear on a Queens of the Stone Age album. People in, people out, contributions here, contributions there. So no wonder things change up all the time. And then there are all the side projects that are different still. So yes, it is confusing. And I think that's exactly what Josh likes. Keep him guessing. Let's get deeper into all this with part two of Secrets of Queens of the Stone Age. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Queens of the Stone Age from 2013. It's My God is the Sun from the Like Clockwork album. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of a look at Josh and Queens of the Stone Age. Last time, we went through the deep history, the desert parties, the story of Caius, the most important of all the pre-Queens bands, the recordings known as the Desert Sessions, Josh's detour into the Seattle grunge scene, and finally, the creation of Queens of the Stone Age in their first album. Now let's move on to the second Queens record, which they called Rated R. But... Before I go any further, please do not call Queens a stoner rock band. They may have played in that space back in the days of Caius, but Queens does not like that tag. And second, they are not nor ever have been a grunge band, although they will admit that they were set on their career trajectory by the popularity of grunge and with the help from the late 90s, early 2000s wave of new metal. Okay, now that we're clear on that, Let's move to the second album, which was called, like I said, Rated R. This is where we really begin to feel the robotic repetition of riffs in the band's music. Very staccato. Bass player Nick Oliveri said at the time, we try to take a riff and pound it into people's heads by doing it over and over. This was one of the singles from the album, and it's an example of that approach to riffing. It's the lost art of keeping a secret. The Rated R record was made with Josh and Nick, with help from at least 15 guests, including, believe it or not, Rob Halford, lead singer of Judas Priest, along with Mark Lanigan, ex of the grunge band Screaming Trees. Now, this was interesting because Josh was once a member of the Trees, and now Mark was a member of Queens of the Stone Age. This 
constantly shifting lineup was just how Queens worked. Josh and Nick at the center, some core members to fill out the band, and then a billion guest appearances. And this is where we get to Dave Grohl. Dave first saw Josh and Nick when they were still in Caius. This would be 1992. After that show, they met up and became friends. A few years later, Dave managed to help get Caius the opening slot on a Metallica tour of Australia. And then in the fall of 2001, it was announced that Dave would be joining Queens of the Stone Age as their full-time drummer. Now, Foo's fans were more than a little concerned about this. What, was that it for the Foo Fighters? But Dave was very clear that he was just taking a break. Being just the drummer again in someone else's band would take the pressure off him, would revitalize him, would lead to some kind of surge of creativity that he could then apply to the Foo Fighters. So Dave joined up about halfway through the sessions for the album that would end up being called Songs for the Deaf, joining Josh, Nick, and Mark Lanigan. One of the interesting things about this record are the interstitial bits featuring fake radio DJs. The idea was to make the record sound like you were listening in the car, driving out in the desert at night, and every time you changed the station, more Queens of the Stone Age would come on. Cool idea, right? Except there was almost nothing the record label liked about the album. From the moment the label heard the demos, they hated it and kept sending notes. Josh flipped out a couple of times about that. The title comes from a gig the Queen's sound engineer used to have. He used to play music at dance parties for deaf people. The audience loved it when he pumped up the bass, which they could really feel by holding big balloons. And considering the initial reaction by the record company, Songs for the Deaf became, you know, a nice metaphor for the whole project. Now, you would think that the CD Songs for the Deaf would begin with track one. Actually, no. There's a secret track that can be found if you immediately press the skip button back when you put the CD in. This hidden bit is called Real Songs for the Deaf. But if you've missed it all these years, don't worry about it because uh, this isn't something that you'd listen to twice. See? The first single, the biggest hit, and the catchiest song from Songs for the Deaf is No One Knows, a song that had been hanging around for about five years waiting for the right combination of players to tackle it. And this time, they got it right. Queens of the Stone Age and No One Knows, featuring Dave Grohl on drums and background vocals. It was nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance at the 2003 Grammys, but it lost to All My Life from the Foo Fighters, featuring Dave Grohl on guitar and lead vocals. Dave stuck with Queens until August of 2002, when it came time to go back to the Foo Fighters. His replacement, the third Queens of the Stone Age drummer overall, was Johnny Castillo, who used to play with Danzig. But that wasn't the biggest change. I mean, people came and went all the time, but it would always be Josh and Nick, right? Well, no, Nick had become a real liability. He might have been Josh's best friend. And yeah, the guy did like to party, uh, maybe a bit too hard. And yeah, he did have a habit of performing on stage wearing nothing but sneakers, which got him arrested in Brazil. 
who knew that public nudity in Brazil was against the law. And um, then there was that time in Australia that he got the group banned from their hotel. But fine, they could deal with all that. But things had gotten way out of control. Josh tolerated things for as long as he could. And then in early 2004, he fired Nick. Here's the statement from management back then. A number of incidents occurring over the last 18 months have led to the decision that the two can no longer maintain a working partnership in the band. Now, digging into the situation, the breaking point seems to have been a gig where Nick threw beer bottles at the audience. Full bottles of Corona. He pitched them like fastballs. They tried to spin it as semi-amicable, but Nick let everyone know that he had been fired. And, oh, he said, Mark Lanigan is leaving the band, too. So this meant that in early 2004, Queens of the Stone Age was down to just one member, Josh Homme. But he seemed to be okay with that. After all, he wrote 90% of the music, he was the lead singer, and as long as he was in the band, Queens of the Stone Age would continue to exist. Cue the glib and non-ironic playing of this song. Go With The Flow, another single from Songs for the Deaf. So what would become of Queens of the Stone Age now that it was just Josh Homme? Well, he pulled a Dave Grohl. And I'll explain what I mean by that next. After all the drama that reached ahead after the conclusion of the Songs for the Deaf tour, Josh Homme needed to step away from everything else for a bit. But instead of hiding out in the desert, he sidestepped into a project he called Eagles of Death Metal, a band he co-founded with Jesse Hughes back in 1998. The name came from a night listening to a Polish metal band called Vader. And someone, no one is sure who, said, we should play death metal, but like the Eagles. Again, nobody really knew what that meant, but it sounded like too much fun and too goofy not to try. Another story says that Josh was in a Soho bar when Winds of Change by the Scorpions came on one of the TVs, and some guy in the bar said, this is death metal. Whereupon Josh said, well, no, this is like the Eagles of death metal. Whichever story you want to believe, a crew was assembled around Josh and Jesse, and they released a record entitled Peace, Love, and Death Metal. And the centerpiece of the whole thing seemed to be this cover of a Steelers Wheel song from 1973. Josh Homme taking a detour with Eagles of Death Metal in 2004. More Queens material followed that year with a six-track collection of covers and old songs. This was basically some decluttering. Queens got back to business in the summer and fall with a fourth studio album entitled Lullabies to Paralyze. It was Josh, of course. Mark Lanigan had finished doing some solo stuff, so he was back. And drummer Joey Castillo was still around. Everything else was filled in by various guests and friends. There was Shirley Manson of Garbage. There was Jesse from Eagles of Death Metal. Actor Jack Black. Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. And then there was Brody Dahl, singer for The Distillers, who had left Tim Armstrong of Rancid and had married Josh. The big single from the album was Little Sister. There had been an early version recorded with Dave Grohl a couple of years earlier, but it just didn't work for some reason. I remember seeing the band perform this on Saturday Night Live in 2005. The guest host that night was Will Ferrell, and he joined Queens as part of their set to provide more cowbell. 
He starts about 90 seconds into this clip. Uh, please forgive him when he falls out of time. Little Sister, live on SNL, featuring Will Ferrell playing more cowbell. Another couple of years would pass before there would be a new Queens of the Stone Age album. The whole thing with Nick really left Josh with a bad taste, so that needed to dissipate before he'd move on. To buy time, there was a live album entitled Over the Years and Through the Woods. And then finally, on June 12, 2007, the fifth studio album was ready. Josh called it Era Vulgaris. The core of Queens was now Josh, drummer Joey Castillo, and multi-instrumentalist Troy Van Leuven. As usual, there were plenty of guest appearances to fill in all the gaps. There was Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. Mark Lanigan came back for some harmonies. Brody Dahl, now Brody Dahl Hummy, was in the mix. And the record almost got Trent Reznor and Jesse Keeler from Death From Above to participate, but they ran into scheduling problems. But they were asked. Let's try something a little different. If you've made it this far, chances are you've heard all, or at least most, of the familiar hits of Queens of the Stone Age. So let's give this a bit of a spin. There were three official singles from Era Vulgaris. The third was Make It With You. This song arose out of more of Josh's Desert Session jams. If you go back to volumes 9 and 10 of these recordings, which were issued in 2003, you'll find a version he did with PJ Harvey. And I thought we'd play that song in that form when the full title was I Wanna Make It With You. The original Desert Sessions version of Make It With You, which was re-recorded for the fifth Queens of the Stone Age album, Era Vulgaris. In that version, background vocals come from PJ Harvey. When we come back, we'll burn through the last bit of the Queen story and finish off with some rather unusual nuggets. Queens of the Stone Age almost didn't get to release a follow-up to Era Vulgaris because Josh Homme almost died. Okay, wait, check that. He did die. For a little bit anyway. This is what we think happened. In the fall of 2010, Josh finally agreed to a knee operation. It should have been pretty routine. All the punishment his body had taken, you know, the touring, the drugs, the booze, had weakened his immune system. Now, doctors knew that, so they needed to re-oxygenate his blood, and this required a breathing tube to be inserted down his throat. But apparently the intubation went wrong. Josh started to asphyxiate, First, he stopped breathing. Then his heart stopped beating. Full cardiac arrest. Doctors honestly thought he was gone. It took a couple of shocks with a defibrillator to bring him back. That was bad. But what came next was also very bad. The knee surgery kept him in hospital for 13 days, during which time he acquired an infection called MRSA in the leg that required the surgery. This is very bad. Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's a superbug that's immune to just about every antibiotic known to man. This left Josh bedridden for four months with tubes draining his leg, which, added to the pain of the infection, was awful. Getting up was almost impossible. When he did, he was completely disoriented. And because of the infection, his contact with other humans was severely, severely restricted. His daughter Camille was really young at the time, and Daddy couldn't touch her. 
He slipped into a deep depression. He had zero creative urges whatsoever. He seriously thought about giving up music entirely. The MRSA was eventually beaten back. Josh took up meditation to help with his headspace, and he credits Trent Reznor with helping him turn things around. When he was able, he would go for coffee with Trent, and they just talk for hours. It was kind of like therapy. It took a couple of years for Josh to recover, and the whole experience changed him. He says he now knows what's important, and the album Queens was finally able to release was very much influenced by what happened. Here's a track from 2013's Like Clockwork. Let's go through a bunch of miscellaneous stuff about Queens of the Stone Age. Between 1991 and 1993, Josh Homme had gigs working raves. He'd set up all the lights in exchange for a supply of ecstasy. Josh has more than 20 tattoos. The one that hurts the most reads Freetag 415. This refers to a show the band played in Germany on Friday, April 15, 2001. It was so bad that each member of the group got that tattoo to remind them to never perform that poorly ever again. Josh and Brody Dahl were married on December 5, 2005, but they separated on November 15, 2019. Josh likes guns, Josh likes motorcycles, and he likes muscle cars. Josh is a big guy, 6'5", and he's been in a few fights, members of other bands, a couple of fans, and then there was the time he kicked a photographer in the middle of a show. Let's switch over to Nick Oliveri. On July 12, 2011, a SWAT team was called to his house over a report of some kind of domestic dispute. Two hours into the standoff, he agreed to release his girlfriend. Eventually, the SWAT guy stormed the house and arrested him where they found a loaded rifle. He reached a plea agreement over the whole thing and was ordered to community service and to stay out of trouble for six years. Now switching over to Eagles of Death Mail. Although Josh is officially a full-time member of that band, he doesn't always tour with them. That's why he wasn't at the Bataclan Theater in Paris when terrorists took over the place on November the 13th, 2015 and killed 89 people who were all at an Eagles of Death Metal show. Moving on to this. Josh was one-third of Them Crooked Vultures, a supergroup that featured Buddy Dave Grohl and Led Zeppelin bass player John Paul Jones. They released a self-titled album in 2009, and it was after that that Josh ended up in the hospital. Josh toured with Iggy Pop as a guitarist on his post-pop depression tour in 2015. He loved that gig. All he had to do was wear a suit and play guitar for his hero. He loved it. Josh's list of collaborations also include Trent Reznor, Primal Scream, Daniel Lanois, The Strokes, Local H, and The Arctic Monkeys, a band for which he produced the Humbug album in 2009 at his own studio. Oh, and speaking of which, that studio is called Pink Duck. It's in a nondescript old house in a residential section of Burbank, California, not too far from the airport. I've been there, and it's loaded with vintage gear. Josh also likes to do some voice acting. He's appeared in an episode of American Dad and Aqua Teen Hunger Force. He's also appeared on Portlandia, a BBC comedy entitled House of Fools, and on a bunch of others. It was Josh and Mark Lanigan who came up with the theme music for the Anthony Bourdain show, Parts Unknown. And finally, Josh has something called the Sweet Stuff Foundation, which is a charity that helps out musicians, producers, engineers, and their families when they run into times of illness and disability. Got all that? 
Okay, here's one more song. This is from Them Crooked Vultures in that project. It's called Mind Eraser, No Chaser. Them Crooked Vultures from 2009. At this moment, there are five members of Queens of the Stone Age. There's Josh, of course, Troy Van Leuven on guitars, Michael Schumann is the bass player, keyboards come from Dean Curtita, and the current drummer is John Theodore. There are about a dozen former members and at least a dozen more people that we can call frequent collaborators. Nick Oliveri has never re-entered the picture much, but he and Josh have long since reconciled. And while there were still calls for Caius to reunite, that hasn't happened, at least not yet. This program is also available as a podcast. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any number of the other podcast platforms. All podcasts are free. Please subscribe, download, binge, and rate. There are hundreds to choose from. If you have an idea for an ongoing history episode, email me through alan at edge.ca. We can also connect through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget about my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter, which, if I say so myself, is worth subscribing to. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. See you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.